Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, it's a masterpiece. We did we did watch a masterpiece. Right. I or like s- the way this month has been. Yes. It started out with the masterpiece and ended with the masterpiece. Oh, we watched Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Um, we didn't watch the best version. We mm-hmm. watched the version we could access. <laughs> Uh, the 95-minute version. And before we get started talking about it, because we do have a lot to say on the su- subject, how was your week? I can't remember. For the life of oh, me. Oh, it's, it's been a blur. It's been a blur. There was so much going on this weekend. Um, and in the days inter- you know, between yes. recording, I cannot for the life of me remember, but I'm sure I had a good time because I have nothing negative whatsoever to say. Well, that's good. You, on the other hand, you were off. I visited a friend for a birthday. It was good. good. It was good. Yeah. Um, Hi, birthday friend. Yes. Hi, birthday friend. He doesn't listen to the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he'll never know. Uh, he'll never know. Or he does, and he's never told me that he does, which would be wild, but it's possible. Um, I... What else was I going to say about that? I don't remember. So I guess we it's time to get started to talk about Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil. Wherein Janet Lee plays the whitest white woman that ever existed. And Charlton Heston plays a Mexican man. Yay! Janet Lee is on the verge of without ever becoming a Karen. No, but she film. does have real tech meteor manager energy. And also... The energy of someone who does not think anything bad can happen to her. That's and y'all, more of what I'm, I'm getting. Bad things can happen to her. Bad things right. do happen to her. I think that was uh, the line that that one of my friends found, who's a very accomplished traveler, found most funny about another film we'll be watching, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh-huh. She burst out laughing when uh, Karen Allen yeah. shouts that line, You can't do this to me, I'm an American. <laughs> and And... Bitch, we're going to disappear you, and it does not matter. (laughs) That was, she said, uh, one of the funnier things she's ever heard, because it was really accurate to American thinking when traveling abroad. Yeah. They sort of wander into dangerous situations. They go into slums they're not supposed to. They, they at times, flaunt their money, and then, you know, something happens. Wait, I'm an American. You can't do this to me. I think that's fading. Not that I don't. I think Americans are getting better in other countries. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying women are scared more. By themselves, they don't quite act mm-hmm. as cavalierly as Ms. Janet Lee acts in this film. But do you want to talk about the movie before we talk about the movie? Like, do you want? Well, to- I'm probably to explain the thing that's going to be the most problem for modern audiences. Um, the brown face? Yes. Okay. Charlton Heston is in brown face in this film. His name in the movie is Ramon Miguel Vargas, and his wife keeps calling him Mike, and I wanted to elbow her in the face every time. So... His wife is Janet Lee. <laughs> the genesis of the film, as far as the interviews I was able to recall, was the property had been purchased... Um, and it was done, uh, it was produced by Albert Dugsmith, who had done some films that were really creative and unusual and mostly just did exploitation movies. Yeah. But every once in a while in his, 
filmography, he'll have um, Lady on the Beach, which was a melodrama with Joan Crawford, or he'll do The Incredible Shrinking Man creative things. But mostly they're movies like, you know, Invasion USA, about the communists invading the United States and things like that. Um, so he was mostly an exploitation producer, but he could get funding behind him for some things, and he bought a film noir called Badge of Evil. Right. With Masterson. And he uh, he approached Orson Welles to play the villain in the film. Right. And the hero was going to be played by Charlton Heston. Now, the idea was that the hero is going to be an American, right. a white American, uh, married to a Mexican woman, um, but... That doesn't really work with well, the story. It doesn't work because what happened was... So there was... Um, Charlton Heston at this point can do nothing wrong, and he actually was very much like, for modern audiences, what Tom Cruise is, is a good example. Okay. Somebody this who, is 1958. Yeah. So he was somebody who could just, for, for years, just have his pick of whatever part he wanted. And when he's asked by the producers to play this character, he says... Um, he would, you know, he was trying to decide whether or not to do it, and um, this is still pretty early in his career, right? But it's, um, but it is post um, Golden Golden Globe for the Ten Commandments, right? Which is really what put him everywhere, and then, yeah, and it's early. As I said, he's one of those actors who perennially was a go-to actor for. I mean, perennially. Excuse me. Let's start that again. He was one of those actors who, for 20 years, had the top choice of films. Everything from, and that's part of the reason why science fiction is a popular genre, is because Orson, I mean, excuse me, Charlton Heston kept popularizing it through films like Planet of the Apes and. Right. Um, uh, what was the, the, the film he did? Uh, the version he did of I Am Legend, Omega Man. Omega Man. And. And um, Soylent Green. Soylent Green, right? right? So yeah. he was popularizing it as a genre when producers were afraid to put money behind it and things like that. So anyhow, he gets a phone call. They're trying to push the script on him. He said that uh, he was considering it, but the script wasn't quite what he wanted. Right. And then they tried to dissuade the sort of deal and say, Orson Welles is going to play. He signed on to play the executive, the antagonist of the movie. But we don't have a director. Captain Hank Quinlan. And so Heston saw this opportunity, and this is a theme that happens when you... I love the idea people. of hearing, uh-huh. we've got Orson Welles to play the character, we don't have a director. I'm like, you have a director, what are you talking about? Well, well, and there's <laughs> Pay him more money. One of the things that, <laughs> that Heston talked about in the interview that I heard was that there was a lot of... There was two things that happened with Orson Welles, one of which was his need to sort of tweak the nose of the authority and the establishment all the time. And so that didn't work well for him. Yeah, he was a brat. And but the <laughs> thing is the other thing is he was a genius, which a lot he of was people also a genius, yeah. envied. And so you have a group of semi talented people or people who are trying to make money from art and then this guy's actually producing real art. That also makes money, right. which is why I don't understand why you stand in the way. You say, great, mm-hmm. I will back that, I will produce it, and I will take a chunk at the end, because... Right, well, so 
Orson uh, Welles was offered up to him as like a co-star, but not as a director. And Charlton Heston said, well, uh, I heard Orson Welles is a pretty good director. Why right. don't you just have him direct the film? Yeah, it's not like he's not a right. visionary genius that we've all, you know, known about for years and years and years. But he also rubbed Harry Cohn the wrong way. He did all sorts of things that essentially made him sort of an outsider. And so he's been working... And a lot of that had to do with working with people of color. Right. <laughs> like, he, he and John Houseman began the first uh, all-black uh, core... Um, like theater company? Theater company. And they did uh, adaptations of Richard Wright. Yeah. Which were pretty amazing because those are really those are really pointed films about race or stories about racism. Yeah, he did that, and he also did the very infamous, and that's a long story that we can't get into now. But Ugh. you should look it up: the Voodoo Macbeth. Oh, that one. I thought a, you were going to talk about how he played Othello once. No, because also he did that. Yes, and this was in that in in that respect, he's very much an actor from his time. In that, it's, it's he, it goes to show the difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like oh <laughs> but he um so charlton heston insisted on having orson welles as director orson welles took it without i don't according to some versions of the story he took no additional increase. money right and the orson. notion was i mean i'm sure he was fine I, i'm sure he had plenty of cash the notion was that orson was uh as heston and i appreciate his use of his language profligate <clears throat> Uh-huh. He said, no, this was a really fun, collaborative, economical shoot. I believe that. All these stories that people tell you about him spending... No, he wasn't. He wasn't like that at all. Uh, what he did, though, though, in coming back to, from Europe, and we saw films that he did in Europe, we saw one of them um, in The Third Man. He right. He had learned about handheld cameras. Right. And that was the big revolution for this film. A camera that he could mount on the end of a car. A camera that he could mount on a crane. A crane, yeah. <coughs> the opening shot of this movie is one of the most classic shots in film. Yeah. It's If you t have taken film class, yeah. you've seen this opening and you yeah, we have, have talked about it. Our roommate was not feeling well and about to go to bed when we started and she's like, well, let me stay up. Let me watch the, the beginning of the this. Beginning of this film. I believe it's 12 minutes. I... I that's I'm, the number that's given. It didn't feel like 12 minutes, mm. but it might have been 12 minutes. But it is an uncut crane shot that crosses the border. Right. And so, yeah, so there was a lot of differences with the film, uh, for, with the book from the film. And when Orson Welles took over the project, he agreed on the grounds that he would be able to write a completely different script. Right. Now, Heston points out, yes, and his part suddenly became huge. <laughs> well, because... He got him the job, right. and, and I think Orson Welles like liked to act right. and loved to direct. Yeah, so he he, he and write. Know. Like I think that's the create part. I'm mean, acting is creating well, too, but it's sort of an ephemeral he's a, creation. He's a very interesting person for, for a lot of reasons, and one of them is that he just achieved. Just, he distinguished himself in radio. Yes, I mean. Which is which makes his acting in this movie even more noteworthy. And we'll get right. to it when we get to it. But we were talking about it and earlier. And he was uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Yes, sent people running out into the streets, worried about Martian invasion. Um, we're so gullible then. 
gullible and he was now the actual martians could be landing in our backyards and we'd be like and right (laughs) what's that Um, got to do with me and then he did live theater yes and then he did film and it was just like amazing at at all of these it's just amazing um accomplishments in each of these fields but he is a consummate storyteller right and and can do it in multiple um mediums yeah mediums that's another good way to put it but yeah he completely rewrote the script and one of the things he insisted on was that we change charlton heston's character to a mexican character which it wouldn't work the other way right in the story that he wrote i don't know about the original story if you look at the story that as it is right now yeah then you would have a young mexican woman kidnapped and menaced by these thugs, and you would have her white savior come in to help her, and Orson flipped it. But not to mention, uh-huh. if you have Orson Welles as the antagonist and a white man, mm-hmm. you need the Mexican protagonist right. because a lot of the doubt that that Welles is able. Uh, Quinlan is right. able to cast on Vargas is, well, you're Mexican, so you think... Right, he doesn't talk like one of them. And that was another interesting point, too, because they, they Heston says, yeah, so we, we switched it, and now I, I'm a Mexican. And, the, of course, that seemed very strange to him, even at the time. And he said, well, how do you want me to do this? Should I have an accent? And he goes, no, no, this is the whole backstory, Wells told him. He's from a wealthy family in Mexico. Yep. He went to the best schools. Yep. He came to the States to study. This is where he met this woman. Yep. From the Midwest, because she's, you know, she's that kind of corn-fed. Yes, she is corn-fed. She, I mean, right. she generally is she, the blondest, porcelainist, right. wide-eyedest. And she, you know, he, I, you can just picture her as, as the corn queen yes. at, at, at the festival. Um, but this is what happened. So he was not going to speak with an accent. And, no, he and doesn't still, have an accent, which yeah. I do appreciate, because that would have made it, frankly, a rough watch. Yeah, and so there are actors here that are going to be in uh, in brownface. Yeah, Heston is, and then there's just these Marlene Dietrich. Marlene Dietrich kind of is. We don't know what her ethnicity is right. in the movie. It feels like a Romany character. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got a weird accent, and she's definitely been darkened. Right, and she had a dark wig and a, a yeah. sort of like um. And Romany, that's the word I have to remember to use now, because I mm-hmm. just, the other word is so easy. We don't I, use the G word. Right. It's really easy for me because I read it for such a long yep. time. Oh, gosh, no, I can't say that. Nope. Romany. The Romany um, people. But, yeah, so. But she also might be Mexican or or some other Latin right. up to Mexico. Right. And, yeah. and, and so there's a. There's going to be that sort of feeling if you're a modern audience watcher watching this going, okay, that's putting me off. But what what you have to remember also is this is the time when things like that were excused, at least in the acting community. It was just what was done. It was practice. Um, At the same time, the way that it's done here switches and tweaks it a lot. It does. Nobody's playing a stereotype. Mm -hmm. That's not happening. So there is a little bit of grace right. that we can offer where Heston is in brown face. Mm-hmm. There is no denying that. But he is respectful. Yeah. As respectful as someone in brown face can be. I mean, 
and it's 1958. Right. 2022. There's no. There's no leeway. Fu Manchu, and his whole thing was, I am not going to speak in pidgin English. I am not going to whatever. I want to at least portray this person as he's an evil person who happens to be Chinese. Happens to be Chinese, yeah. And the same thing, David Carradine's like, no, I'm not going to. We wouldn't do it now. They did it the best way that they could then. It's not ideal, but it doesn't mean that we throw the whole thing in the the trash. But talking about it and saying... Yes, mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that right away. And of course, the other thing I want to acknowledge, Orson Welles being, and we've talked about him, I think I talked probably far too much about my admiration for him when we did The Third Man, um, was such a draw to the other actors. Janet Leigh yeah. um, got a card saying from Orson saying, I'm really happy to, but we'll be working on this film together. And she approaches her agent and says, am I doing a film with Orson Welles? And he, he or the, the agent was just frustrated going, oh my God, that man won't stop. He just keeps calling and trying to get you for a part. And At which time she hopefully fired that manager. That's one version of the story is that she just fired that person and because, got one because why are you yeah. cock blocking my Orson Welles experience? I'm gonna need you to Here's get the out thing. the way. Janet Lee is a very funny actress. I mean, she's a very striking. She's a beautiful woman. Yes, she is. Remarkable figure in the entire thing. The reason I bring up the figure is that she was actually said to have the best figure in Hollywood in terms of her proportions and everything. That, was, that is a subjective, that is right. not an no, objective. that was something like, according to, God, her and Ava Gardner, I think it was a magazine contest. It was yeah, very gross. That's Anyhow. gross. But the point was that she could go on doing this the rest of her life, or the rest of her career, but every time she had the opportunity to take a break from playing, you know, the ditzy blonde in a film, or playing the yeah. object of desire in a film, yeah. she's like, Orson Welles, I want to work with Orson Welles. Yeah, why? Alfred Hitchcock, I get to work with Alfred Hitchcock? Okay. Uh, oh, that maybe was a terrible idea, but... <laughs> but at the same time, she's her whole thing was, they her, again, you're only going to be in the first 10 minutes of the movie, but yeah, I get to work case, with Alfred Hitchcock. In that case, yes. Right. She didn't get the Tippy Hedren... No, she didn't get the Tippy Hedren treatment. Treatment. And, so. then, but, and then much later on, in, uh, or no, and then again... John Frankenheimer, who's that? I want to be the Manchurian candidate. I yeah. get to work with this new director who everyone's talking yeah. about. A few, and then in her retirement, her daughter's saying, I had a good time working with John Carpenter. So she does the fog. Yeah. I want to work with John Carpenter. Yeah. This is her mentality. And so... Just, yeah, I want to work with people right. who are interesting and fun and, like, and I want to, to see work what this with. person brings to the set. I want yeah. to see the way that they run. And everyone there. And she is... She has offspring, obviously. Right. That uh, that is, but was is she the first in the line, or is she from a Hollywood family? Uh, Janet Lee is not from a Hollywood family. Okay. But of course, her her children. She, of course, she she became like right. the matriarch of a well, Hollywood yes, family. She, she married into the you know she married a movie star and was a movie star herself, and they produced movie, movie stars. stars. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. But too. I didn't know she was, like, in the middle, like, no. if her parents no, were. No, it's not or... like the Barrymores or, or right. something like that. Yeah. Or the Houstons, for that Or the Houstons, right. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so, you want to talk about the movie, the plot yes. of the movie now? The plot of the movie, which some people lose track of. I find it very easy to, to follow, but... I find it easy to follow, mm. but... Um, it is odd, and you paused it when it happened. It's 45 minutes into the movie when we get the plot, basically. Right, exactly. Like, a lot of stuff is happening, but we don't know 
where You're, it's going, you know what's all the happening. Yeah. And the Thanos opening shot has, I believe, every character from the film, except for the Night Watch guy, I think, wandering in front of the camera at one point or another. Was Quinlan in it yes. too? Oh, he is. I missed him. I, I should watch like it again. Everyone's yeah. wandering around in front yeah. of this camera. And, um, and so we, yeah, 45. I wanted to know what happened because he mentioned that it, you're just sort of overwhelmed almost. And I understand that part of it because visually, all of Orson Welles' movies can overwhelm you on a visual level. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like a Where's Waldo situation. Right. There's a lot going on, and you're, what, what you see is what you can see. Like The compositions are amazing. The compositions are amazing. You can pause his movies and just yeah. be like, art frame, that whole art, frame to, right, art frame, art frame. And it's not, it's not illustrated. It's right. just, no. this yeah. is stunning. I wanted to ask you, we see who puts the bomb in the car, right? Very early on, you see someone's hands putting the bomb in the just car. Just the hands. Right. Okay, that's what I couldn't remember, is if you saw who it was. But yes, you see, it's... It, a crane raise up and 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 like sort of come over the top of a building, and mm-hmm. we see a car, a convertible car, coming through checkpoints mm-hmm. from the Mexican side of the border into the American side of the border of a town called Los Robles, which is a border town that is on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see. And and we see an old man and a and a blonde woman in that car, and they're going very slowly. And then we see uh, Heston and Lee walking together, sort of pacing that car almost. Um, and then we see various other people, and we just track the car and the other stuff that's happening through the basically through the entire town, from one side mm. of the town to the other side of the town. Until on the other side of the town, past the border, because they are waved through without a na- with nary a look from by the border patrol, and then the car explodes because I mean, it really explodes. It explodes. <laughs> uh, the The explosion is hilarious because you hear it, and then the image that you see is a car on fire landing. Like you don't see the act right. the start of the explosion; you just see the end of the explosion, and. At that point... That is the most exploded car I think yes, in any movie. it was wild. Um, but there were supposedly eight pieces of dynamite in right. that car. That was That's the math that has been done for us later, or that is done for us later. So Heston's character, Vargas, mm-hmm. is the Mexican head of the Pan-American Narcotics Commission. So he works in tandem with American cops to crack down on drug flow. Right. From Mexico to America. It's usually that way that we're worried about, right? Uh, and he's just had a breakthrough on a case and put um, one of the grandees in jail. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that this may be maybe retaliation. Some, But it looks like the dynamite was put in on the Mexican side, which means he sort of inserts himself and he's like, you guys are going to need me, basically. Right. Um, the person actually investigating the case is massive. He's massive in this movie. He is wearing padding, but he is right. huge. And also, I'm pretty sure they put him on crates because he appears to be 6'6". Six, six. Well, he and realize, maybe... He's, I think, 6'2". Okay, so guy. he... I didn't realize yeah. that. I thought he was a shorter guy, but yeah. he is... He's a, he's a head taller than everybody in this right, movie. And that, that's interesting. One of the things that you can pay attention to when you're watching the film, if you haven't seen it already, dear audience members, is 
He does tricks with Charlton Heston, who's also very tall. Yes. Who's taller in a particular scene? Who's closer to the camera? Yeah. And they shift dynamic a lot yeah. so that when Heston's beginning to accuse him of yeah. what we he later starts getting out, taller. He starts getting taller. And as Hank starts drinking, right, he starts getting smaller. Yeah. Um. So, but he has padding on his body. He looks like he's six six and maybe five twenty. Like he looks. Right. So big. Uh, here's the the funny thing is that he had gone to Europe to make films for a while, and uh, and he produced some wonderful films there. Falstaff is one of them, but where he also wore a lot of padding. But well, um, yes, as you do. <laughs> but what he wound up doing was remember that you rarely ever see him out of makeup. He's a stage actor, primarily, so he loved wearing makeup. Yeah. The closest you get to seeing his actual face, I think, is in some scenes in Citizen Kane, and also in The Third Man. That's pretty much his face. Yeah, he's got like a puckish face. He turns into a blobfish in this movie. <laughs> right. As the movie gets goes on, and, and we also, the other thing that's sort of magic about this movie is, it's almost real time. It's not almost real time, oh, because it's two days. But it is... They are awake this whole time. They are all exhausted. Um, and he starts drinking after 12 years sobriety. We'll get into it. And he gets moister and jowlier as the film goes on. Yeah. He just is blob fishing out. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. He's a... He was in Europe. He was doing films. He came back to do this movie. He, at one point, leaves the set to drop in by a dinner party where he was one of the feted guests, and he decided he had to show up, and he was just shoot, he would shoot all night long. Yeah. He would shoot, because you Which see, you said in this, right. there's night for night shots, like... Actual night and for dawn. night. And dawn. You see dawn coming mm -hmm. in a black and white film. Right. And so he did this, uh, he shows up, in as Hank Quinlan, because he didn't have time to change to get to this, and that uh, there was a, a producer or a producer's wife, I, I don't know which, mm -hmm. who saw him and was shocked, but still said, you look wonderful. How have you been keeping yourself? He's like, He's like I look like garbage. <laughs> this is not the way I actually Go ahead look. and lie to my face. But That's again, fine. as a Hollywood person, she's he like... He does have like a cute, puckish round face. Right. If it's if the third man tells us anything, it's that he picks. looks like he should be you know having small wings that carry him place to place. Cherubic. So he offers his assistance. Quinlan is like fuck you and hell no, and, but then everybody around Quinlan's like sorry, um, we would absolutely love your assistance. That includes um, Pete Menzies, who I thought period every time they said his name. <laughs> Uh, and the district attorney, Adair, they apologize for Quinlan's behavior, and they do allow him to, Vargas, to sort of trail their investigation because he's highly placed in the Mexican government. government. Right. They and so he is practically on the cabinet yeah. there. He, he, and again, that goes he's an with, extremely powerful figure. Right. That goes along with what, uh, what, Orson said to Charles Neston about it. He's a person who's very highly educated, yeah. who's very well informed, and he's come here to rid his country of all this. Right. Um, 
And then we have some breakaways. And the breakaways are typically are, are largely Janet Lee getting lured into places she absolutely shouldn't be in and then mouthing off to people who are definitely wanting to kill her. <laughs> and she doesn't die. So she is brought over to uh, meet Uncle Joe, Grandy, who is running the Grandy crime family because his brother is in jail, thanks to Vargas. Right. Um, and we've got sort of... And she does sort of call him out on being like, you think you're a gangster, but this is bullshit. Let me go. Like, I'm leaving. Like, she just... she, But she, she doesn't back down from him. Right. When maybe she should? I yeah, don't know. That's kind of what... She, but he doesn't I, kill her, so right. I guess she's good. She's, he's trying to frighten her. And she's and just like, you're a all, sad, small little man. Right. Damn, bitch! <laughs> yeah, she, she does this... He does, like, there's a... Uh, and it's Akeem Tamaroff, who's a really fun character actor who I've seen play everything. You know, mm-hmm. he was like a. a Tamaroff sort of, doesn't sound like a. No, he does not. Le, le, a Hispanic last name. No. Uh, Is but, he also doing brown face? Yes. <laughs> he's very funny though because he's really good at playing these very oddball parts. He is, and he's ridiculous. When you see him in some of the scenes, sort of in the background, right. as he's going one place, but we're following somebody else. He just looks like a cartoon. But it looks like a lot, and this is a, the best comparison I can think of. You remember The Godfather? Yeah. Like, what if Michael was in jail and Fredo took over the family? Yeah. That's exactly yeah, that's, what it's that's like. That's like what's happening, right. <laughs> he's been, like, I got this. And, and he's got various youths of the organization trying to sort of make their name mm-hmm. by doing some dumb shit. <laughs> Um, which he he and he doesn't know it happened. It's happening yeah. until it's happened. He's lost, which makes him look terrible. Right? Yeah, he's lost all control of this almost as often as he loses control of his wig, which is always falling off. Yes. Um, Small time <laughs> crime boss with a bad toupee. Right. He's <laughs> yeah. just. He's and she tells him that at one point. You're like, you're, you're a cliche. You've been watching too many gangster movies on television. Yeah, and she's like, something bad's going to happen to your husband if he continues his prosecution of my brother. And she's like, I'm not going to... I, first of all, it's cute that you think I have any control over what my husband is going to do with his job. Like, that's not... They're newlyweds. we got to keep this in mind. Um, And they're going to end up living in Mexico City. That is what their plan is. I don't even know why they were in this town, but it's fine. Just on their way through, I guess, they stopped for an ice cream, I think. It's, (laughs) yes, I remember that because he says right now, my, in the very beginning of the film, that opening shot. Yeah. uh, They were headed to ice cream. Yeah. The the guy, the person in the car who gets blown up is Oh, his name is Rudy Lineker. He's a construction magnet and he is with a stripper. Right. And mind you, it's also important to realize Orson got a lot of his friends to show up. Some of them are completely uncredited in this movie. Marlena Dietrich showed up that way. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the producers were like frightened of like, wait, is that Marlena Dietrich? They saw it in the 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 work in the the, like dailies. Oh God. Um, And (laughs) they're like, well, wait, we can't afford her. So they call up her agent, and she said, well, if you put my name in the credits. Uh, you can't afford me or use me to advertise the film. You can't afford me. But if you don't, you can pay Give, me. You can pay me day rate. I want to work with Orson Welles. They had and worked... she only has two or three scenes. Right. They're right. really important yeah. scenes. Yes, they are. And the, the funny uh, thing is... She that... is the only thing that human, humanizes Quinlan. Right. Really. They worked together, Orson and uh, Dietrich. Dietrich, 
when he was doing the USO shows. He would do his magic shows. He did magic shows oh, for the USO? A, yeah. That's amazing. Yes, he was an amazing magician. He used to do... I remember him... What, I, I didn't kid, know that. That's incredible. That he did magic, really kind of creepy magic. He he had a sort yeah. That of a, doesn't surprise me because that's another way of to story tell. Right. He he um is the, he did sort of creepy magic, the way that David Blaine maybe does nowadays. These sort yeah. of strange kind of and he'd weave these stories and then sort of pull you in with that voice. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing him doing stuff on on uh, Merv Griffin. He was a regular guest, right? And he would do magic shows, but he'd been doing magic shows with Dietrich and never got a chance to work with her. Right, so they just his, worked in these right. live live performances, but never on. Joseph film. Cotton shows up in yes, this movie. Right Zsa Zsa Gabor shows up Zsa, for yep. uh, like a minute, playing one of the strippers who gets interrogated. Later. Yes, yeah. Um, so we see. Quinlan visit, speaking of, speaking of which, Tanya, mm. or Tana, her name is Tana, uh, former lover, runs a brothel, mm-hmm. is making some sort of chili <laughs> when he shows up at first, and she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I really like your chili, though. She's like, <laughs> right. uh, get out. <laughs> like, and she just, she, it feels like sh- they've done this back and forth for a long time, and she's tired. Right. She's just like I don't. She doesn't even recognize him when she first sees. No, him. he has put on a lot of weight and he's mm. changed pretty significantly. At this point, this is when we find out he's been sober for twelve years. Right. Um, and and she's like, "Well, I'm you know good for you, I guess." Uh, he says he's eating more and drinking less or whatever like that. That's what it is. So he still has a compulsive right, um, which is intake the, situation, but so it's many, food like, instead of. What we tend Booze. to think of as modern ends with the character. Yeah. Things that, you know, in older films, often, I remember uh, Val Luton talking about how in, like, Curse of the Cat People and the yeah. films that he did, the studios were surprised that people actually had careers in his films. They all took place. People had jobs. They went to, you know, had to You know work, what's crazy is it, that's how people live. Right. And but it's not how people were portrayed in right. media. And so I like that better because that feels less propaganda-y. That's why I'm yeah. like, movies from the 50s are like propaganda. That's well, not how people's from the 30s existed. were often or, about heiresses. Yeah. Well, yes, of course. Right? Or they were about characters who... But also there's all these things like uh, psychiatric or psychological things. Like I went from compulsive drinking to compulsive right, eating. Exactly. Which... Maybe even the field of psychiatry or psychology hadn't figured out, but we understand as people yes. with similar issues, oh, that is how people work. Like, yeah. even if we haven't done the research and written up a paper on the subject, there are some truths about humanity that we understand yeah. as truths about humanity. And when they're shown up to us on the screen, that brings us in. Yeah. It, because we really do, Hank Quinlan is. the villain of this movie. You genuinely do care about him, though. You care about him mostly, and this is the... There's a Maltese, uh, it turns out, a Maltese actor Uh uh, named Joseph Kaya, who plays uh, Sergeant Menzies. Menzies. His his number one, his right-hand guy. Right, who's a guy who just looks like... He's like a puppy. Yeah, but he also reminds <laughs> me of like everyone's grandpa. He's yes. goofy. He's like, yeah, and he just worships jovial. Me. Yes, 
jovial, uh-huh. but yes, worships Quinlan. Just and so that also humanizes him because it's, yeah, he has an actual this love. This, this person. person loves him, right? Um, and that he winds up becoming very important too. Yes, because he's defending Quinlan even though he sees him doing wrong things. Yes, and he'll he will get really defensive with Vargas, but not hostile, right? In a sticks in a sticks up for his man way, not in an attacking right. the attacker way. Which is interesting. That's yeah. that puppy energy, I think, too. Well, also, the, the other thing is, Varg, uh, Quinlan makes these offhanded comments that show that he's horribly bigoted, but he never, at no point, descends into being a rampaging bigot. It's not no. like we're seeing him yelling out epithets. And, no. No, no, but he, does, he doesn't talk like one of them. Yeah. That's right. just that low-key racism right. that we exactly. just have in us and that we have to so like, weed out. So that's the out. kind of racism that you can look at it and go, was that racist? You know, it's one of those things yeah. that you can ask a question about. And um, but Yes, the answer is yes, it's racist. Right. <laughs> but the thing is that it's something that, especially back in the late 50s, you yeah. wouldn't consider it. So what, is, what does he mean by that? No, yeah. It's like, tell, it's like saying black people are right. articulate. Yeah, I'm, he's surprisingly articulate. Why, why? Is, it surprising? why is that a surprise? Right. Say it. <laughs> right. um, and Vargas finds out that uh, his wife, Susan, has been having these run-ins with uh, Grandy's guys. So he's like, you go off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be busy with this here, this explosion mm-hmm. and this whole thing. You go off to a motel in the middle of nowhere. No. She did this because she wanted to go to the American Hotel. Yes. And there was a question about, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you go back to Mexico? You can take a flight today. And she's like, no, go I go back to Mexico City. Sleep. No, I just want to get some sleep because right. it is the next morning. Like yes. they were going to get ice cream, say at ten o'clock at night. It mm-hmm. is the next morning. She's exhausted and she's been sort of harassed by various right. members of this. Um, crime family. And he's frightened, and he wants to get her out of there, because at one point, and one of the more surprising scenes, especially, uh, when I first saw it, was somebody tries to throw acid in his face. Acid in his face, yeah. And it's like, Jesus, that they're pretty serious about... Yes, and that that is when we find out that Grandy doesn't have any fucking control over his... Right, his, because they're all the trying use, to break Because it was one of his family right. that did not seek permission to throw acid in a state official's face. Right, especially such a public state official. Uh, yeah, and, and in such a public way. Like, right. the fuck? So, yeah, so he wants to get Susan out of there, so he ships her off to this motel. And but unfortunately... Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, that motel is owned by the Grandy family, because of course it is. The dude that works at the motel uh-huh. is the most autistic person I've ever seen on television or on in film. Charlton Heston likes to get credit for casting Dennis Weaver. Dennis Weaver, who was okay. working in Gunsmoke at the time or something. Okay. And it is such a weird part. The way that it right. is written is so strange. The way that he plays it is perfect for, I'm sure, what's written on the page. But this man is this, autistic. This is part of the process because uh, the actor who played... Um, uh, Uncle Joe has a one of his the, the young guys who gets nicknamed Pancho at one point. Yeah. Um, who's a, what's his, uh, 
Valde Vargas, who's an actual Vargas, mm-hmm. uh, he talked about how Orson would sit there on the set and just like, everyone breaking, we're going to have lunch. And then everyone would sit around and have lunch, and he would sit there with the crew. That's exactly what needs to happen. Right. And they would talk about their parts, and why don't we try it this way, why don't we try it like this. And the, something that Janet Lee brought, brought up is that he was never bothered if you somehow came up with a better idea, because... He was there for the best ideas, right. and he doesn't think that he is the only one who can come up with good ideas, which is why Janet Lee wanted to work right, with him, exactly. why Marlene Dietrich wanted to work with him, why, why Joseph Cotton showed up on a day, why Charlton Heston was like, right. hire this man to direct, because he's looking to make the best movie possible, period, end of discussion. Yes, a lot of his ideas are the ones we're going to go with, but not all. Yeah. And that's it. He's still in control of it because he can edit the film any way that he wants. Yes. And it turns out this one got kind of taken away from him, so he didn't get to edit it. <laughs> but uh, what in in this case, uh, the uh, Valde Vargas is talking about how they were all sitting around and they would just sit there and talk about how they wanted to go through their characters and everything. Charlton Heston suggested Dennis Weaver. Dennis Weaver shows up, and he's discussing that it wasn't even on the paper, from what I understand. But the character they came up with, or what he... He's so nervous. He said, can you play him like a Shakespearean idiot? Like one of the characters in, in Which King Lear, I guess... The Fool in King Lear. Who's if you like, look at those characters clean off the page, uh-huh. autism. Right. <laughs> like, well, I often... I and, and honestly, how an autistic person mm-hmm. would have to survive in Shakespearean times... Right. Maybe to play the fool. But yeah, Shakespeare's character, the fool in in King Lear, is a is probably one of the best parts in the entire play. Right. Really, um, because he gets to say anything he wants to, and he's yep uh, he's free from any kind of retribution because he's the fool. Right. Um, but yeah, Dennis Weaver just runs with like every. He's a tall, thin guy. Yeah. And he hunches himself over and he stoops and he does all these weird kind of mannerisms. I, I'm going to have to find a part that he did where he's playing closer to his normal self so you can see how different or marked this change is. Right. Because he really just throws himself into this. Yeah, part. no, it's it's clearly acting. Like, this right. is not his natural state, but it is, it is so weird to watch because it tonally is very different than what's been going uh-huh. on. It just makes you feel like, oh, Janet Lee, you got to get the fuck out of here. Right. This place is not and okay. the weirdest part is he's not the one that you have to worry about. No, he's absolutely not. I was like, is it going to be Anthony Perkins? Right. No, it's not. But I wouldn't have been surprised to see him. I'm just saying. Um, we track down a suspect by going to the quarry and seeing who hasn't been there in a while because the quarry is where the explosion is right, very carefully regulated and then and a road or something they basically track down uh his name is sanchez mm-hmm. he's a, uh, a shoe clerk he is sleeping with the victim's daughter not the stripper victim lineker her name is marcia she didn't seem that upset that her dad died when we saw her at the beginning of the movie. Um, and it turns out she's actually married to Sanchez. Right. She and Sanchez are married. And he keeps saying he's innocent and he's begging Vargas to help him. And after a search where Quinlan says, you know, I looked around a little, but you guys need to be more um, thorough because I don't, I don't know that I was very careful. Menzies comes out of the bathroom with it, a shoebox that has two sticks of dynamite in it. 
Right. Which which is what would be left over if there were eight sticks of dynamite in the in the bomb that exploded and ten were missing from the, the quarry. Now, I don't know how they know it was eight six dynamites that were in the car, but maybe they could figure that out from the remains. I don't know. But previously Vargas had been in that bathroom and did knock over that box and there was nothing, nothing in, it. in it. So we know, he knows that evidence was planted. He figures it's Quinlan that planted it um, because Menzies seems legitimately surprised and yeah. like he really did find this thing. So he's like... God, Menzies, watching it this time? Yeah. That character is heartbreaking. He is. Because he's like, I did a good job. I did a good job, didn't I? He, yeah, look what I... Puppy energy. Right? Who's just, a good boy? <laughs> and he's been palling around with... Uh, with um, Quinlan so long that it's like they just have this relationship. Yeah, he's a, Quinlan's a 30-year veteran, and I bet they've been working together for 29 of those right. years. Like, <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? It's been a long time. And, and this is where the plot drops. We're 44 minutes in, right? and Vargas is like, Quinlan is dirty. He, he fra- he's framing this man, and who else has he framed? Right. And I have to say the performance of the young man, too, is really very good because you're just sort of sitting there while he's going on and he's very desperate. And well, because he's, also, he's like... He's also very angry and defensive. Yeah. And he's like, well, what, why don't you think she could fall in love with me? There's something wrong with that? Yeah. I'm a shoe clerk. What? So I happen to be a shoe clerk. And yeah. at every point, he is a fully developed character. He's yeah. not just the patsy. He right. Has, but also, it's clear uh-huh. that she... I don't think that she, I think she did fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's using him no. to like frame for the death of her father. I mean, maybe, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening here. What does happen that's sad, uh-huh. and that scene is really well played by this actor, is when a lawyer shows up and just says, excuses her out of the case, and Quinlan lets it be, and then he realizes that she's covered, but he's not. Yep. And yeah, where you're just like, I thought we were in it together, right. and we're clearly not in this together. Because there he is. Because she's up yeah. here and is leaving me down here. Like, yeah, she could she could lift me up with her. She is yeah, this is that her lawyer, and that. they just they exit stage left. Yeah, or something, and he just and he's is just like they're holding the the bag, so to speak. Yeah, lit- literally, yes. So at this point, we've got Vargas. Going up into Quinlan's face and being like, "You're framing. You framed him, mm-hmm. and I think you framed framed other people, and I'm gonna prove it." Right. At which point, Quinlan uh, goes ahead and falls off the wagon, just bloop, right off the wagon, because <laughs> right. he uh, did frame this man. <laughs> that is true. And then we have him being sidled up to by Grandy, bad toupee. Remember him. <laughs> Um, like Slugworth in fucking Willy Wonka, like <laughs> I've got, I let me offer you this deal. Right. And they go to a bar and they drink. They, he gets he pours That's them two drinks. Scene. It's a great scene. Yeah. He pours them two drinks and he says, "I don't drink." And Grandy's like, "Okay, that's fine." And he puts the drink in front of him, the the shot in front of him, mm-hmm. and he lays out his plan, which is basically, we're going to. Make Vargas look dirty by framing his wife, mm-hmm. like 
drugging her and then framing her to look like she is a drug addict and maybe a prostitute or maybe some sort of, you know, Mm. sex fiend. (laughs) Reefer madness, y'all. They are worried about... They also talk about heroin, heroin but right. but the discussion about weed in this movie is well, ridiculous. Weed in the... Uh, this uh, is where the word marijuana comes from and why marijuana is a racist term. That's why I use the word cannabis or mm-hmm. weed um, rather than marijuana because marijuana is not the name for the plant. It's literally a term to make you think, oh, it's foreign and dangerous. That's right. that's that's what that term is. So we don't. Oh, okay. we don't. I was <laughs> um, yeah. But this movie leans into that stereotype, like hard. What happens to, if you want to discuss that now? Yeah. So so that that is laid out for Quinlan, and he's like, uh, and and uh, what's his name? Duh, 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 duh. Uncle Joe? Yeah, Uncle Joe says we should drink on it. And Quinlan says, I don't drink. And he looks at his glass and he has drank, he has drank yeah. half of it. Like, he, without even realizing, he's already all, just in it. Right. And he doesn't agree, but he doesn't not agree. And he is going to be drinking for the rest of this movie. The, the look of. There's a interesting silent kind of self-reproach when he looks at that glass and also a resignation like well here we are and in aa and in other programs um they try to teach you the next right decision so that if you make a mistake yes you aren't just like welp i'm back to square one so i guess everything's fucked and i just do the worst things now if you stop take a second and then make the next right decision, which would be pour the rest of that glass out and walk out, right? That's what the next right decision would be. His next decision is to finish that glass and then just load up on bottles because, like I said, he is drunk the rest of this movie, which is kind of remarkable because his voice, his his first of all, he's got this huge frame that is padded mm-hmm. out, and but being filmed as bigger, he is listing... He's moving so slowly, his voice is slurred and marble-mouthed almost, which is insane given the fact that this man has a voice of gold. Like, right. a, like you, were ta- you, you told me the story about him narrating. Right, he was narrating uh, History of the World for Mel Brooks. He did the narration for that film. And he, Mel Brooks had hired him for five days. Um, and he got all of his his recordings done in the first take. So he and was he done in like two and a half yeah. hours or whatever. Two and a half hours is what he said. And it's uh, there's a similar story about an episode of Night Gallery where uh, it's based on a Conrad Aiken story, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, he was asked to narrate it. They were getting to the time where they're editing the episode. He hadn't responded. And then they just opened up a package that came to the offices there. And there was... A tape? A tape with everything that was all in one continuous loop. There were no cuts on it. He was just that good. Just, because he worked in radio. He worked in radio. Right? And because he's not a voice actor, I, I said, it's not like uh, Rob Paulson coming mm-hmm. in and he's going to give you 14 different takes right. so you can do whatever you want with them. 
Orson Welles understands what he was hired for. He was hired to be Orson Welles right. and narrate this movie. Yeah. So that's what the fuck he did. And he did it clean every yeah. time because he understood the assignment. And still got paid for his five days. Right. The film still saved money, though, because you know who they didn't have to pay for five days? <gasps> the recording right. studio. There's a, <laughs> there's a whole holy crew that did not that have to. That didn't have to do anything for yeah. four days because he was done. Yeah. And he, I think part of it also comes to that ethic comes from live radio. Also, pay the man for five days. Right, because and he did. What is it? I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm sure he got paid before he walked in the door, but it's it's also a situation just like when you hire me. Mm-hmm. Well, it takes me 20 minutes to do the thing that you hired me for, but that's only because I've been doing it for 20 years. Right. So you're not paying me for the 20 minutes. You're paying me for the 20 years. You're paying me for the experience. Same thing with Orson Welles, narrating anything for you. Yeah. You're paying... To have Orson Welles narrate for you. Right. And if you can manage to get clean takes in two and a half hours, right. that's Just a go, fucking that's miracle. It. You thank right. him. You, you take him to lunch and maybe dinner and let him tell you stories for the rest of the day. Which is and then you let Bell him go Brooks, on his way. He just like sat there and talked to him for the rest of the Why time. Why wouldn't you? And again, that speaks to his personality that Mel Brooks shows up for the ADR session, or not the ADR session, the voiceover session for... The movie that he's filming. Yeah. I like, I don't have to show up to look at a guy in a sound booth, but it's Orson Welles. Yeah. And this guy's going to have the best stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, he's one of those alive or dead who would you want to have a meal with? Right. Orson Welles, 100%. Christopher Lee, 100%. Right. Chadwick Boseman, for oh, 100%. Yes. Like, if I get those three, right. And Jesus, I'll take you next time. <laughs> Like, I know what you had to say. They wrote it down. But, like, I want to hear those stories, right? Um, And I think Chadwick Boseman's character, or, like, um, career is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. The fact that he, for a while, was just playing famous black people. And I'm curious to know how that affected him. He had a lot of stories that he didn't get to tell. Yes. Absolutely. Because I I wanted to know about that, too. And the way that he affected people on sets that Mm -hmm. were working with him. That's the other thing is it's clear that his presence was a grace um, to the people around him. It's a huge pity. Uh, Sorry for that bummer in the middle middle of the episode. So the next, basically the next scene is an attack. We don't know quite all that Janet Lee's character goes through. Uh-huh. She is attacked by a gang led by a woman um of young men, but there are a couple of women in here and the wo- and the young woman is actually taking the lead. Where she ends up, she has been drugged with heroin. They have blown <laughs> weed smoke all over her because they say they can smell it on her, right? Like she had this party, but it's pretty likely that they rape her as well. Well, that's... I believe that it was made clear that they didn't rape her. Okay. That they were It was never to... clear to me in the mm. watch that that is not Cause a at thing one that point, happened. Bancho, that character, yes. comes in with Mercedes McCambridge. Yes. Playing a lesbian biker leader. That's, that's her. That's right. the one that's kind of the ringleader, yes. Who comes in with her girlfriend. And again, I can understand the the reason why, apparently, Wells thought that they took this edit away from him. That first cut uh-huh. was that they saw 
marijuana, drug use, lesbians, Mexicans marrying white people, white, yeah. white women. Um, they saw all these things, and it was just so much, much. that they're just like, no, 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 we're putting the brakes on it. Yeah. Uh, it feels like if this was a real thing that was happening, she would have been raped. Yes, and but they don't. They want to set set it up. At one point, it's you're led in that direction. Right. Grab her legs. Yes, because they pick her up, right. and she's screaming and fighting. She's also in a nightgown, so already she is vulnerable. And that scene is played off almost as if this is the ultimate conservative. Yeah, you know, it feels very much like this is what could happen to white people in right, brown exactly. countries. Be careful, everyone. Like, And it's played that way. Yeah. It's like he really leaned into, okay, this is like the Pulp Fiction origin of yeah. what this story was about. She apparently is not raped, but they do, one of the reasons they hold her legs down, they're injecting her with heroin. They're injecting her with heroin. Or they're injecting her with, um, I'm sorry, something that gives the symptoms of heroin you find out later on. Oh, is it Demerol? Yeah. Yeah. And Which so, is... Just hair over the counter heroin. Right. It's so they the inject her with that. Thing. They're blowing smoke everywhere. Yes. They're, they're So she winds up just being. I mean, it's a sexual She's assault in out. any. Yes. By any name, it's not rape. It's not rape. Okay. But. Um, but yeah. she's yeah she's she's violated. Because the whole idea is not to make it look like she was a victim. The idea is to make it look like she was, she was actively, actively participating, participating in, wild in this party, party. The exactly. And they move her to a downtown hotel. Right. Away from this real um, sort of rural area into the downtown hotel where right. she is un- left unconscious. And Vargas goes to try and find her and the, the room is empty mm-hmm. and his gun is missing. Right. So that's Yeah, Vargas important. finds out that the hotel is owned by the Grandis. And then he goes to right. go get her, but it's too late. Um, he does, I think, meet that night yes, guy. Yes, he does. And he's like, I don't know what happened. They didn't the have the day person disappear. He's embracing a tree or something. Yeah, he's it's very, he's, yeah. He's had a rough time, man. <laughs> yes, he has. Poor um, man. And... Vargas is also met, meets with the police chief and district attorney to say, I think Quinlan is framing people. I think he's planning evidence and I think he's framing people. And uh, Quinlan, of course, storms in and he's pissed that they're not standing up for him and they like equivocate and they're like, of course we believe you and this, that and the other. But it is clear that some of them fucking don't. And Menzies even is like, um, I mean... <laughs> well, he does something really interesting. There's a, a couple of lines in this movie that really have stayed with me. Yeah. And one of them was the line that he, where he tells uh, Menzies, I believe, and also the, the other character whose name escapes me, who um, is more sympathetic. Yeah. In place who, you know, he's obviously friends with you, call each other amigo. Yeah. It's about the nature of police, and that's really what this movie is at the heart of it, what it's talking about. Yes, for sure. Which is that Vargas is the police officer that everyone wants who's just going to go by the book. He's not going to rough up the suspects. Yep. He's not going to. If that you know, is the the guilty party, then we've got to figure out how, how to make, right. how to prove that. And not by planting stick. evidence, but. By doing police right. work, he says, "Police being a being police right. is only easy in a police state." Which is one of my favorite lines. Which in the is movie ever. yeah, and it's great, and it's like, oh, that's fucking real though. Yeah, it should be hard to be a cop. 
It should be. And so the, the notion, and that that line over the last couple of years with all the, Ooh, the issues yeah. that have happened, that line has stuck with me because yeah. it's like, yes, you're acting as if you're in charge of us and you're not. You're not. You you're know, not. You're a public you, you work for us. Right. Not the other way around. The, the idea that, yeah, you were disrespectful, so I shot you. Excuse me? What? You're disrespectful in everything you do. I don't get to shoot you. What, why do you get right. that? Why do you get that right? The fuck? Yeah. Um, but a young DA is like, mm, let's go here. Why don't you come look at the archives? Come do some research. And... It strongly suggests, <laughs> because Quinlan and Menzies are the ones that are finding right. these breakthrough pieces of evidence. And this is evidence. mostly based on Quinlan's, quote-unquote, intuition. Right. I have a great cop sense. My game leg acts up. Yeah, you know, acts like up, yes, because he's, he's, he's using a cane through which this whole film, really which is important. Which is a really important thing yeah. I should have mentioned. I should um, mention. and, but it's, and, and his wife was killed, mm-hmm. and w- he was never able to... Um, Find who did it. Right. He knows who. Well, not find who did it. He knew who did it. He could never prove it. He couldn't it. prove it. And so, and says, so it seems like he's on right. a. If he believes that somebody did it, he's going to exactly. plant the evidence that is the linchpin and getting them convicted. I'm going to like the evidence will somehow come that way. Yeah. And this is how Vargas begins to appeal to to Menzies. Yes. Because he's he says, like, how many how many pieces of evidence have you found? Right. Including this one. He just left it behind and he conveniently found it after everyone had been through that apartment. Yeah. And he's like, I saw that box. It was empty. Yeah. Like three minutes before. That's, that's what makes. And Menzies believes him. Yeah. Really good because you can see where Menzies slowly starts. And then he's like, but, but they're guilty though. Like, right. We're not doing anything wrong because they're guilty. Yeah. We're just making sure that they go away. That's his last line Sir. of defense. I mean, at first he really doesn't Sir. want to defend Quinlan. And right. go, no, uh, well, the know. other half of it is if you have been set up to right. set up these people, how does that feel? Right, exactly. That if you are not in on it. He could be culpable, or he is culpable. He is culpable. So, yeah. He yeah. Even if he wasn't in on it, if he ever suspected that this seems too easy and he's he's too good at this, and you never, you're a cop and you didn't put it together? Yeah. Because you wanted the easy wins? Because you wanted the accolades that you were getting from working with him and, and solving all these cases? Ugh, it's a bad look. <laughs> um, he, he, he pulls it out at the end, though. Um, so, yeah, Vargas was trying, had tried to reach Susan by phone. He couldn't get through because the, um, the Grandy boys are, what are they? Yeah, Grandy. The Grandy? Uh, boys are running the switchboard and are just like, oh, you know, the she's put her do not disturb on or whatever, you know, whatever it is. He's they're they're or not answering the phone at all. And so he goes out, finds his gun missing and his wife missing. And at that point, we also and he finds that the room is, you know, all the all the weed smoke. It's all like torn apart. Something has happened here, and she's gone. And meanwhile, Quinlan and Grandy go to the hotel downtown, which is also owned by Grandy, because that's what he owns, hotels, apparently. And they go in and find Susan, you know, I guess just opiated out on the bed. And 
the idea, it's he and Grandy, right? And the the plan, as Grandy has presented it to Quinlan, mm-hmm. is to show Quinlan this is what they're going to find. And right. we're going to, you know, we're going to send Vice up here and she's going to be arrested mm-hmm. for drug use. Right. And then they're going to suspect him also of drug use because she must have gotten it from... Her cop right. husband, her cop who husband has is constantly breaking these guys, right? And yeah. So of course, and, she, mm-hmm. and and they're trying to get people to believe that Vargas is also using, right? And Quinlan's like, cool, cool, cool. Um, I am gonna strangle you right now. So Quinlan needs he's he's deep in the drink at this point. He right. is slurring, he is sweating, he's blobfished out, and he does kill Grandy to tie up loose ends to. Uh, make it even worse on Vargas to uh, sate whatever inside of him is yes. <laughs> so, like it's unclear, but he strangles him and leaves him sort of hanging over the bed right. in a way that I'm like, how would anybody think that she killed this? But okay, he's not fully thinking because he does also leave his cane behind in the room. There's a really shocking shot in this scene or in this film. There's several of them actually, but where. Janet Lee's character wakes up and she sees this horrible... This distended face with her stocking wrapped around right. his neck. That's what he killed her him with. Yes. He, he takes her stocking, which was not on her person, and strangles him he with it. He stick his tongue out far enough. Yeah. As Orson wanted. So they Well, because up, that's hard to do because it's, a, it's yeah. a rigor mortis thing that you physically can't do. He wound up getting a sheep's tongue and putting it in his mouth. sticking it in his mouth. I hope he got hazard pay for that day. That's, <laughs> yeah, which that's is rough. very like, but but for this couple of seconds that you see it, it is really shocking. It, he pulls off some amazing stuff here. Yeah, and then we hear Vargas screaming for his wife, and Susan screaming for anybody because she has woken up and found mm-hmm. this body. And then, and that's an important scene too because you he loses his cool. He's so calm yeah, he's and collected. Sco- yeah, all he's he is he's out of it. Right. Worried about this woman, he comes and in what has happened this, to this her. Bar, she, you know, there's uh, the the, the grandies are all the kids that kidnapped her. Yeah, all sitting there. Um, and then he fucking picks one of them right. up like the fucking shape in Halloween, and <laughs> right? Rams him into the bar, but like he takes seven, eight yeah. steps holding this kid up, and, and I was that, like, oh, that was Charles Maston. That was a uh, big, strong guy. And so that scene, really, you get the sense that he's just lost it. Uh, and then, yeah, and they find each other, and it all just... Well, yeah, it, uh, Menzies comes to him and says mm-hmm. she's she's been picked up by Vice. She's at the police station. And he's like, um, I found I found this in the room. And it's the cane. So now Menzies is like, yeah, there's, this is not. (laughs) It's clear she's still so out of it. She got up and was screaming. But then when we see her again in the, in the, um, jail cell Mm -hmm. where she has been put in a jail cell, but she is, you know, she's, she looks naked. I don't think she's wearing anything. I'm like, put something on this woman. Mm -hmm. But she has blanket up to here and she's still, sort of wheel out of it, and she's like... This is the least glamorous eh, that Janet Lee has ever looked. Eh, and he's like, it's okay, I will, I'll take care of you, or whatever, and then... Um, and he and Menzies basically put together a plan to 
wire up Menzies and, and, and yeah, this with is, the hopes that Quinlan will This confess. is after he confronted him and, and you know, explains to him that all these things uh, yeah. can be tied directly to you. You're going down yep. with him. And he's and Menzies has found the cane, so there's right. no... It's, there's no dispute there's in no what dispute he's doing in. now. Yeah. Although even at the last, he's like... The scene where he snatches the paper out of Heston's hand yeah, and he's like balls up his fist like he wants to hit him. And then you realize he's literally half of Charles Heston's Yeah, size, he's not... But he's still, like, so scra- He's so defending yeah. this guy that he's willing to do something that's yeah. just going to get him mushed. Mushed, yes, very mushed. Um, and then Quinlan, we see, he's with Tana again. He's gone um, to the brothel. He is so drunk. And he says, read me my fortune. And she's like, you don't have a future. You're all, your future's all used up. It's real sad. <laughs> it's very sad. And... Um, as he's heading out the door, Menzies comes up to him and he starts asking questions, mm-hmm. but he's not slick about it. He's not, he's not it's but, it's but also Quinlan's drunk as shit. So Quinlan right. doesn't realize what's going on for a At while. At one point, Vargas pokes his head in there yeah, and then pulls it out. And then Menzies shows up. He's like, um, and Quinlan's so drunk. He goes, I must be drunk. I, I thought for a second you were Vargas. It's like, yes, that's was. right. Yes, that's right. And, and technology in the 50s, mm-hmm. Vargas is carrying a fucking, like, tape recorder right. that is actively playing out what Quinlan he's, is saying he's a, underneath them. So then Quinlan starts hearing himself. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, drunk or not, that's going to give him away. Yeah, he's following, there's a very, it's a strange scene because Menzies and... Uh, Quinlan are walking along. Uh, the idea they're is that, walking towards a bridge over a canal, and mm-hmm. and Vargas is going underneath. Right, he's trying to keep up with him because he has to keep in a certain range yeah, to be able to right. get this, you know, conversation, and right. also to get that moment. Yeah. And Quinlan at first is evading the questions, and there's a great moment where he goes to to Menzies. He's like, uh, "Oh, that must explain. You've been hanging out with Vargas. That must explain that thing you're wearing." Yeah. And you can see the look on his face like, Holy Oh no, shit. I busted. It. It's like, what, what thing? He goes, that halo, that halo. Is that what they call it? That halo. It's the like, oh, yeah, it's not the wire. <laughs> but then, yeah, Quinlan hears them. He mm-hmm. hears their voice on the recorder. Right. And that's when he realizes he's wired. And Menzi or and Quinlan starts going down mm-hmm. to where Vargas is, and Menzies tries after, to stop not, him. Not before he shoots. He shoots Menzies. Only after he stops him, he he doesn't shoot it. I think I'm pretty sure he goes t- towards mm-hmm. Vargas. Menzies tries to stop him. That's, okay, when, he that's when he shoots him. And then you're like, oh no, puppy! Right. And then he goes down, and this. The the body acting mm-hmm. that Wells is doing, he he plays drunk so well. Right on like rocky cliffs in this big body with uh-huh. this padded suit. The way that he just so deliberately takes every step, the tilt of his head, the tilt of like just yeah. it's spectacular to watch. <laughs> and he gets down and. They, they like, fight. He's like, I've got you on tape. Mm-hmm. I know that you're guilty of framing these people. And, and then Quinlan is going to murder Vargas. And he's still... Heston's big, but right. Quinlan and is Quinlan also still massive. has his gun. He's also... And he's got 
Vargas's gun. Right. It's Vargas's gun that he shot Memphis right. with, mm-hmm. and it's Vargas's gun that he's going to shoot Vargas with. Right. Um, and that he's going to pin all of this on Vargas. Although he doesn't, I don't think he realizes how fucking far gone he he's, is. Yeah, he, I, I mean, know that he can't think his way. He's probably blacked he's out at be, this yeah. point. Yeah. He he's like, I just have to keep tying up these loose ends, right. and it's like, no, 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 it's unraveled. There's right. not, it's not loose ends anymore. You just have a pile of string. Like there's not, you're not going to be able unless you burn everything. Yeah, it, you're fucked. And he, but he's not like Compass Mentis. He no, can't. no, no. He's just like the kid who keeps sticking his finger in every yeah. hole in the dam and trying to stop it from leaking. And uh, and then Menzies drags himself over the edge of the bridge and does shoot Quinlan before he can shoot Vargas, and then he does die. But he's, he he redeems himself. There's a, a moment of... There's a lot of... A lot can be said for the Shakespearean tradition. This is going to sound like a strange aside, but... Quinlan is... They're like by a canal. It's filthy, and there's all this rubbish by the sides of it. Um, on the banks of it, rather. And as Menzies is dying, his hand drips blood yeah. onto it, and you're just taken back to Macbeth trying yeah. to wipe the spots yeah. of blood, yeah. uh, Lady Macbeth, out of her hand. Yeah. And he's going to this really filthy water that's like, even though he's dying, this is his last concern. Yeah. He can't have this on him. Right. And then when he gets, it drips on him again. And it's like, no, no, you can't. You just it, killed it, This is just what it is. Your yeah. only friend in the world. And then um, Vargas goes to pick up. Susan, who's been released, um, mm-hmm. he knows he has enough evidence to prove that Quinlan right. framed her for whatever, and framed Sanchez, but Sanchez did confess to that bombing. And yeah. it is still unclear to me whether he did it or <laughs> right. not. No, I should because be the guy, he, the character, the sympathetic character that we were talking about before, his name is Schwartz. Oh, yes. And he's, uh, the D, he's a DA. Right. And I really liked his performance, too, because that tempered a lot of the... Yeah. And he's a lot of... He's he's just sort of running info back and forth. Right. Like, he sees what's going on, but he also... I mean, as a DA... Yeah. The problem with a DA, of course, is um, he's going to err on the side of the cop that plants the evidence, because the evidence is what gets him his convictions, which is all but that he wants. This and <laughs> this is why there are no... But he doesn't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. He's not jaded enough yet. <laughs> there are no... That adage uh, about... There are no small parts, only small actors or whatever. I think that's a little bit... That's kind of nonsense, but when you see how this actor really makes this into a sympathetic character... Yeah. And he's like, he and Tanya, uh, Tana. Tana. Tana's the, the end. But yeah, Tana's they're, they're the last. the very last part of the film. Yeah. And he's, as the assistant DA, he does these things where, like, Vargas has a suspicion that Quinlan's up to something. You know, the Hall of Records is open to the public. This yep. guy will just, like, yeah. feed him information. Yeah. Because, again, he can't. I, yeah, I can't act against my own interest in my but job, but right. I can tell you how to do it. Right. And so he actually is a really good friend to Vargas's character and to this couple. He's just like a stand-up guy. And the fact that he's able to take that part and invest it with some sort of interest where you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're uh, rooting for him too. Yeah. But yeah. And I, then I, Tana comes it. down to the edge of the canal and she's standing with Schwartz and looking at Quinlan's body in the water. Mm-hmm. And she just says, he was some kind of man. Right, that's it. It's like a... And then just walks yeah. off, and that's the end. 
Right, because it, it's uh, he. She says, uh, "Isn't somebody going to come and take him away?" Does and Orson Welles die at the end of all of his movies? No. Are you sure? I'm sure. Okay. Sometimes he dies at the beginning, I guess. Yeah, just in a few <laughs> minutes. You really liked him, didn't you? The cop who did it, the one who killed him, he loved him. Yeah. And that's like another kind of like sting to that because their relationship, those two guys were stuck forever. He says, well, Hank was a great detective, all right. And she goes, and a lousy cop. Which is another interesting yes. line. There's a, there's a lot of it here. Because once again, yeah. a good cop doesn't plant evidence. Right. Maybe everybody that he framed was guilty, but, but that doesn't make it okay. And then uh, Schwartz says to her, is that all you have to say for him? And she goes, he was some kind of man. What does it matter what people's, what you say about people? And then it's good night, adios, or goodbye, adios. And I, that, that closing line, you know, what does it matter what you say about people? That's also just, that's amazing. That's yeah. It's like such a... This whole thing was about reputations. That's another way you can see this film. And so to sum it up in one closing uh, adage between minor characters in this huge kind of drama says something for that kind of Shakespearean training as well, you know. Right. So what did you think of the film overall? Oh, it was great. It was wonderful. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I wish I'd like to. I'd like to see the best one version. Right. It's all. It's 111 minutes. They say the best version that mm-hmm. was that was re-released in the late 70s. Right. Um. But that's not what's available. To I rent. couldn't find it anywhere. I did look. I, I think you have to buy like the steelbook or something. Like you have to buy yeah a digital or a, a a a physical media I've copy. Seen it. What What's the extra? The extra. It's an additional, this was a 95-minute cut, uh-huh. so it'd be an additional 16 minutes. The film is made up of some scenes that just kind of explain things better. So I know that there were, uh, Peter Bogdanovich talked about not understanding the movie or the crime the film, and that Orson was almost hurt by that. Uh, and then goes on to explain, well, he gave a memo to the producers afterwards saying, could you at least do these cuts to this film and and that'll improve everything. Right. Um and uh and so the great cut that exists is supposed to be that version. And um there are differences in the way the film is introduced, for instance, like the very beginning, that opening shot does not have titles over it. Yeah. It's all you're seeing the glory of that one shot, right? And um, yeah, it does seem a little disrespectful to put right. titles over that because shot. because they're just they're going, why is it taking so long? But he, his point is, look at all. Look the what's happening. Right. There's no cut, and I'm introducing you to everything you need to know about this the space. Funny thing about that is that, and it's that's a famous story too. But in case you hadn't heard it. That shot was done at night in you know at in actual darkness, and you see in some shots like this the beginning of the gloaming as we would call it yeah. uh, in the background. Civil and twilight. What had happened is that this was the third take when it wound up in the film. Okay. Because the guy playing the border patrol person, yeah, is there, and they're coming all. Way down the street, all you know, on this crane, on this jeep, with this whole retinue, retinue, retinue. Yeah. I'm sorry, 
this whole mass of people, small but army is moving Kadra, down the street. Yes. Kadra, <laughs> and the guy, we're not thinking about all the people falling behind this, this right. tracking shot, but the actor on site, <coughs> he saw them, and every time they came this close to him, he suddenly gets flustered and flubs his line. And so they have to start the entire thing. And you have to start it over. You can't. No cuts means no cuts. Yeah. And then it just, he did it a second time. And apparently the second time, Orson Welles tells him, um, Sir. Just mouth the words if you get flustered, if you lose your voice, if whatever. Just Just do your best quietly. We will. We'll dub you if we have to. Dub you in later. We can't just keep doing this. mouth your line. And for heaven's sakes, whatever you do, even if you make a mistake, Keep do going. not turn to me, turn to the camera and go, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells, which is what he did the first few times. Oh, that's the thing. Right. That's what you got to stay in it. Right. Just stay yeah. in it, commit to it. It doesn't matter. And what. I understand it's a weird thing. Right. And you're used to, but the, you can't. Because he's only halfway through the thing. Right. Like, we still have more to do. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was... Also very funny because we don't think of, you know, what it must have looked like. This whole crew of people walking very silently, creeping along. And then you're like, mark hit, mark hit, mark hit. It's my mark. Ooh, sorry, Mr. Wells. (laughs) Oh, no, he ruined it. The guy just kept choking at the last second because he got freaked out, apparently, by the number of people on this Silent army also, of people sneaking Also, if you, if you are wor- used to working on film and not on stage, right. that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah. But that's not going to work today. <laughs> We're trying something different. <laughs> <laughs> and there was. The other, you know, Janet Lee talks about how she had never seen a handheld camera right. before. There's another scene in this mm. movie where the, the camera is strapped to the front of the car right, exactly. and Charles 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 Heston is driving the car and you said that they took the windscreen of the car they out the because this yeah. glare was happening and he does look like he is just driving into the wind. It looks first of all it looks like he's going very fast. I'm just like yeah, and he, he looks like he's going fast. so fast. So reading his lines but very much in a like <laughs> just wind hitting him so much in the face. Yeah, and and uh, Schwartz is with him. Yes, very clever, very wisely wearing sunglasses. Sunglasses, like he he, he knew this was going to happen. Yeah, because it's blinking, like wind just it it's right. a, it's rough. They had to take out the windshield, and the other thing was that there was a lot of dispute about how to shoot this. Yeah, including at one point they're going to just take off the whole front of the car and put a camera platform there, or they're going to have it pulled behind them the, the way that yeah. you do. And apparently Wells had. The sound equipment behind, like in the boot of the car, mm-hmm. had a microphone attached that either Mort Mills, who played Schwartz, either he controlled, I couldn't quite figure out, or Charlton Heston controlled, and they were actually running the microphone while he was Just driving. when they were speaking, right. instead of all of the time to get all the... <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And and the the camera was mounted in front there, and it's... When you're watching it, having come from a generation before people yeah. who had been watching actors mounted on a stationary yes. chassis in front of With the a painting screen, going by. Right, stuff like that. And there were still, if you remember scenes we were watching in Goldfinger that still had the process screen yes, in the yes. back. And it's, With the bumping and the right. and the, the wheel turning 
I'm just like, who's dr- what kind of yes. blindy ass? But, you don't have to. Dr- you don't have to move the wheel that much yeah. ever. <laughs> that, so he was trying to get away from that, and this is an actual car. It's driving, an actual car driving. And, yeah, and an actual camera on the car, and he really took advantage of that. And of, this movie is thrilling in a real understated way, though. Uh, like, you want to see what's going to happen to these characters, but it's not like dun dun dun. Like yeah. it's it's not. It's pretty low key. Like, I'm surprised it made it onto this list, mm-hmm. um, but I'm glad we got to watch it. Yeah. I, I find it thrilling in in a couple of ways, because we talk about the acting thrills when yeah. you're watching something like 12 Angry Men, yeah. and then the action thrills when you're watching something like Goldfinger. Right. And this film has a little bit of each of those. Yeah, that's true. And not to mention, it's done in this incredibly Baroque, weird yeah. Orson Welles kind of style with weird lenses and strange shots and the framing. In this film, there's a shot with a mirror that you mentioned. There's a, yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's shot directly into the mirror. I don't know where the fucking camera right. is. I don't know how he did it. Um, but um, Orson Welles is primary in the mirror, and Janet Lee is behind him to the side, mm. and they don't share a lot of scenes together. And this is almost a scene that they yeah. don't share together because Outside of inside the mirror, mm-hmm. you don't see them together, I don't yeah. think. Um, and she's full-on acting behind Orson Welles, which is props yeah. to you, ma'am, because if I was on the set with Orson Welles and he's acting, I'm watching him act. I'm forgetting that I have a right. body that I'm supposed to be doing something well with, and I'm watching him act. But she is, like, sort of huffy yeah. behind him in a really funny way. And it's done, like I said, through the mirror. But it's super clear. Like, I'm wondering if they shot it backwards. He was... People... Okay, how can I put it? Let me start again. One of the um, people who worked on Citizen Kane with him said there were more special effects shots in Citizen Kane than there were in King Kong. Okay, so he just uses... He loved to manipulate space and things like that. Was he doing a lot of in-camera stuff? Yeah, and then when he did Touch of Evil, there was less of the special effects, but he also really knew how to work things, like I said, the camera mounted on the end. He was very innovative in that. Yeah, not not what we'd consider a special effect, but it certainly is a special effect. He's getting shots in film that we have never seen before. That's a special effect. A lot of credit to him, and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in in Citizen Kane, it was Greg Toland. Yeah, and and for the actors mm -hmm. to go along with it, and to do the things that they've never done before and trust him. Yeah. Rather than fight him on, what, what? We can't do that because nobody's ever done it before. Right, exactly. They were like, wait, okay, let's do and it. In this case, it's Russell Meddy, who's a cinematographer, who, like the two of them just kept feeding each other in a loop. We can do this, or we can try this, or we can do this, or we can... And so between that and the collaborative feel with the actors, it all sort of came together yeah. really well. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Awesome. So that is the end of our October. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what we're going to watch in November. Okay, what are we going to watch in November? In November, we're going to be mostly in the early 60s, and then we're going to time travel to 1999. Oh, okay. So first up is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. I don't know. Nothing good, I don't think. Yes, and this is Robert Aldrich. This isn't... The Dirty Dozen director. I understand, but this isn't No More Wire Hangers. That's not what this is. No, 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 no. Okay. Is that it's, Mommy Dearest? Yes. Okay. I've never seen either of these Crawford. movies. Okay. Yes, yeah. Oh, is it? Is that yeah. why I thought? Yeah. Okay. Uh, then up, we will watch Spartacus. Spartacus. With? Another genius. There Kirk we go. Douglas. 
Well, not Kirk Douglas, but Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, yes. This is the weird Stanley Kubrick. Uh, Blank Check is doing Stanley Kubrick right now, mm. and they talked about Spartacus recently. And uh, they're like, yeah, this is kind of the one movie that he did for hire. Like, it's mm-hmm. not a Stanley Kubrick movie. It's a movie that Stanley it's, Kubrick directed. <laughs> it's something that's very clearly... Because he, he played with genre, genre yeah. a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, like, you can look at The Shining and go, that's a horror movie, but it's also not a horror right. movie, but it's really horrifying. Yeah. And you can look at some of the thrillers that he did. Yes. Like, I defy anybody to tell me exactly what Eyes Wide Shut is. Yeah, I'm not going to. But... When and two thousand one is a science fiction film, but it's also, but also kind horror. of a religious spectacle. It and is it's also you know this other stuff. Yeah. So Spartacus is very clearly a big budget epic epic film yeah. of the same as Ben Hur and the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments and all the, yeah. the films that were made at that time. But again, it's still it's got Kubrick's it's, touches, right. but it's it's the it's the one that people are like. Oh, right, I forgot that was Stanley Kubrick that did that, you know? So then, up after that, 1962's Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum. He's terrifying, so that's going to be fun. Uh, And finally, we close out the month of October, or the month of November on Thanksgiving with The Sixth Sense (laughs) from 1999, a movie that I have only seen twice Uh and look forward to seeing again. I hate that ghost, the vomity ghost under the table. She scares me. So I have to brace myself for that. But that's November. I recently saw someone do a cosplay of that, and it was horrible. But yeah, yes, it was very funny. That, just yeah, it was it was pretty gross. But yes, so it was neat that that's the character you chose to cosplay. Yes, you know, no, that's a very cool has. cosplay choice. But so that is our November uh, lineup. I will put it on the Facebook page. All right. Um, until we talk about Baby Jane and what happened to her, uh, do you have anything you'd like to recommend? Uh, actually, this time, no. I saw a number of things <gasps> I really wanted to recommend. I watched The Spiral Staircase from the 1970s, yeah. and it had this great cast, Jacqueline Bissett and... and um, and, oh, good Lord, uh, Knives Out, Christopher Plummer, there we go. Christopher Plummer, Jacqueline Bissett, John Philip Law, Gail Honeycutt, all these really powerhouse actors, and it just did not come together. Uh, I watched the new Hellraiser because I thought, well, this yeah. was a film that the original was really significant yeah. to me. Is just like one of the few films that really just took it out of me, took the right. piss out of me back in right. the day. The remake wasn't as good, and... So I kept trying to find a First movie. First kill, yeah, yeah. Um, so like no, so, so you're not no. you're not there. I tried. Well, I'm going to recommend a thing that you watched last night, and I watched most of last night. Oh, I okay. don't know some of last night, and that is a documentary on PBS called The Bookmakers. Yes. Um, when you started watching it, um, I was you guys I got too high last night. Yep. Um, so I saw the first half of this. Probably I don't even know. I don't. Time was non-existent to me at the time but i did like watching it and i did but i didn't see the final products and this is a movie a documentary that's largely actually quite local yeah there's a lot of san francisco west oakland berkeley 
makers. Yeah. There's also some people in Brooklyn and, and probably Germany. elsewhere. And well, Germany, okay. Funny, yeah. Which makes now sense. The press, the Heidelberg right. press was right. founded in Germany. Um, and it's about basically bespoke bookmakers. Yeah. They are making art pieces on ancient presses mm-hmm. and using you know, handmade papers or things that aren't paper to mm-hmm. print books on, whether it's clear cellulose or, right. um, you know, found objects or, and, and, and communicating the text in ways that aren't just letters printed on a page. Yeah. There are multiple ways that they're doing it. And, and yeah, I was, and actually, you know what? I would like to recommend that. Okay. I, I watched it yesterday with you while I was working at it yeah. on an outline. Um, and so I saved it though because I know I want to see it again. Yeah, and I want to see the end of it. Right. When I'm not quite so high. But yes, it is a really good documentary. I had recently watched something on on uh, Amazon, the booksellers. Yeah. That was sort of hidden mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This books. is very different vibe yeah, so from I thought, that. Okay, yeah. is it going to be like that? But and then I saw it was about uh, fine press. Yeah. Which I always had this sort of snobbery toward because. I felt, well, who can afford those books? And are they really books? They're just sort of decorative. But when I saw maybe it's a different point of my life or something, yeah, they're really beautiful pieces. Some of them the, are amazing. It's it's about not going, you just inflated the cost of this book to make it, to take it out of the right. reach of, of, of quote-unquote normal people. They're creating art pieces. That's yeah. what it is. That's why they're thousands of dollars. They are using... They're taking many, many hours uh-huh. to create these things um, at a level of craftsmanship that is like it's not a pr- a press, like it's not mass market. It's yeah. it is a bespoke art piece in whatever form, book yeah, form, but it's a book. It's still right. a book. Um, because one of the people on there was mm-hmm. the internet, the guy that runs the Internet Archive. Right. And if you don't know what the Internet Archive is, his goal is to basically scan every piece of literature and every piece of art mm-hmm. so that anyone who wants to have access to these pieces of human history and thought right. can have access via the internet because that's like what that's the best part of the internet right and so he's on there too and he's a man who literally just opens books and scans them like he's he he's in that for the text so it's not just but that is a book he is also a bookmaker in a different format And, and what's interesting about that is that later on um you discover that so that this is happening in different countries all over the world they're scanning their books and contributing to this archive. Yeah. And when the actual object, the physical object is done, they contribute it to a, a book fair that essentially puts all these shelves up and people can come and get them. For free? And so you see, and so the whole accusation that people were making about, oh, this is the end of the book. Right. Uh, it's like, no, this is actually... This is how books live on. Books. Because right. here's the thing. A book... Mm-hmm. As a physical object, has a finite lifespan. Right. It's made out of things that burn, things that get eaten, things that get wet and just dis- right. and soggy and destroyed. 
uh, or things that just age and turn into dust. A book has a finite lifespan. So to say that, you know, a book in a digital format or in this fine art format is better or worse than a book that you buy for $14.99 at the Barnes & Noble it's just the different yeah. version of it. <laughs> and I used to be a person who was like, right. I, I love, I love reading books, like actual books. And I didn't understand the idea of reading digitally. Mm-hmm. And then my eyes started to go. Yeah. And it, reading a book is extremely difficult for me now. If the font is too small, I'm going to fight. Or I'm holding it so close to my head, and then when I get tired, it falls on my face. That doesn't feel good. Like, and I can have a million books in my iPad. Yeah. I can't have a million books in my apartment. You realize um, how much you love books when you have to move. Yes. And it's so heavy. Right. And I remember... That's why I love moving in banker's boxes, y'all, because you can't put... If I get those big U-Haul boxes, mm-hmm. I'm filling them with books, and then nobody can pick that up. Right. Banker's boxes. Yeah. It, I, I remember after the divorce, I was like, what did I come away with? And I'm like, eight boxes of books. Books, yeah. And, and you're was, sitting in front of two bookshelves. I'm sitting three, in front of a right, bookshelf. Right, you're sitting in front of a bookshelf. Um, yeah, you are a physical media person. I, I just, have switched. I have, uh, phys- I have books. I have a lot of books. Mm-hmm. But I tend to read right. digitally now. And that's now. covered here, too, because um, I have Audible, too. Yes. Oh, you so, listen to a lot of books. So yeah. I'll listen to them because I have the same problem. You know, that there are issues with my eyesight and things like that. And just time. Yeah. If I'm driving, I can't read a book. Yes. And, and I used to get some of, and this is going to sound really weird, but when I worked at a bookstore, yeah, uh, I had... Originally, I had like an hour bus trip between mm-hmm. where we lived before yeah. and my job. And then it became um, almost twice that in travel time every yeah. day. Uh, and that's where I did most of my reading. Yeah. Because I could just sort of find a corner and just start. And I went through so many books that way. Yeah. And so now that I'm writing more and stuff like that, I can I can increase the font size on something that I'm on a manuscript that I'm writing myself. Yeah. I can't quite do that with a paper-bound book. No. But you know, just behind me, I have some first editions of Arthur Mockett and some very early editions of Nathaniel yes. Hawthorne. And it's like, yes, And I those are those. like art pieces. Right. They are, they are treasured possessions. Yes. But they are not the only way no. that books work. And also, listening to a book counts as reading. And right. when you, people make the argument that it isn't, I want to stab them in the face. So if you want to fight me over something, tell me that listening to an audiobook isn't reading. Tell me it doesn't mm-hmm. count. We'll fight. <laughs> that is some ableist bullshit. Are you telling me that a deaf person's never read a book or a blind person's never read a book? Fuck off out of here with that. So, anyways, I will ha- I will have that fight with you if you want to have that fight, but don't cuz this is a stupid fight to have. If you absorbed the meaning and the words that the author put forth, you read the book. Right. Period. Then. All right. I think that gets us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you for sticking with us through October. Thank you for uh, joining us for all of the geniuses of the month. 
And next time we meet, we will talk about Baby Jane. Whatever did happen to her? Betty Davis is in this movie. I don't know that I've ever actually seen Betty Davis in a movie, and I'm excited about it. She has eyes, I hear. Right. This is what I know of Betty Davis. So uh, until next time, I uh, you can if you have questions or comments or concerns, you could email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at latecomerspod or on Facebook by searching for Latecomers Podcast in the search bar. I would like to remind you to please take your medicine. We would like to remind you, better late than never. 